be poisoned, and immediately thereupon did usurp and invade the crown. He knew not which was the greater lie. For Mr. Blood had spent a third of his life in the Netherlands, where this same James Scott, who now proclaimed himself James the Second by the grace of God, King, etc., first saw the light some six-and-thirty years ago, and he was acquainted with the story current there of the fellow's real paternity. Far from being legitimate, by virtue of a pretended secret marriage between Charles Stuart and Lucy Walter, it was possible that this Monmouth, who had now proclaimed himself King of England, was not even the illegitimate child of the late sovereign. What but ruin and disaster could be the end of this grotesque pretension? How could it be hoped that England should ever swallow such a perkin? And it was on his behalf, to uphold his fantastic claim, that these West Country clods, led by a few armigerous Whigs, had been seduced into rebellion. Quo, quo, Celesti Ruidus! He laughed and sighed in one, but the laugh dominated the sigh, for Mr. Blood was unsympathetic, as are most self-sufficient men, and he was very self-sufficient, adversity had taught him to be. A more tender-hearted man possessing his vision and his knowledge might have found cause for tears in the contemplation of these ardent, simple, nonconformist sheep, going forth to the shambles, escorted to the rallying ground on Castle Field by wives and daughters, sweethearts and mothers, sustained by the delusion that they were to take the field in defense of right, of liberty, and of religion. For he knew as all Bridgewater knew, and had known now for some hours, that it was Monmouth's intention to deliver battle that same night. The Duke was to lead a surprise attack upon the Royalist army under Feversham that was now encamped on Sedgemoor. Mr. Blood thought it very probable that Lord Feversham was equally well informed, and if in this assumption he was wrong, at least he was justified of it. He was not to suppose the royalist commander so indifferently skilled in the trade he followed. Mr. Blood knocked the ashes from his pipe and drew back to close his window. As he did so, his glance travelling straight across the street met at last the glance of those hostile eyes that watched him. There were two pairs, and they belonged to the Misses Pitt, two amiable, sentimental maiden ladies who yielded to none in Bridgewater in their worship of the handsome Monmouth. Mr. Blood smiled, and inclined his head, for he was on friendly terms with these ladies, one of whom indeed had been for a little while his patient. But there was no response to his greeting. Instead the eyes gave him back a stare of cold disdain. The smile on his thin lips grew a little broader, a little less pleasant. He understood the reason of that hostility, which had been daily growing in this past week since Monmouth had come to turn the brains of women of all ages. The Mrs. Pitt, he apprehended, contemned him that he, a young and vigorous man of a military training which might now be valuable to the cause, should stand aloof, that he should placidly smoke his pipe and tent his geraniums, on this evening of all evenings, when men of spirit were rallying to the Protestant champion, offering their blood to place him on the throne where he belonged. If Mr. Blood had condescended to debate the matter with these ladies, he might have urged that having had his fill of wandering and adventuring, he was now embarked upon the career for which he had been originally intended, and for which his studies had equipped him. That he was a man of medicine, and not of war, a healer, not a slayer. But they would have answered him, he knew, 
that in such a cause it behoved every man who deemed himself a man to take up arms. They would have pointed out that their own nephew Jeremiah, who was by trade a sailor, the master of a ship, which by an ill chance for that young man had come to anchor at this season in Bridgewater Bay, had quitted the helm to snatch up a musket in defence of right. But Mr. Blood was not of those who argue. As I've said, he was a self-sufficient man. He closed the window, drew the curtains, and turned to the pleasant candle-lighted room and the table on which Mrs. Barlow, his housekeeper, was in the very act of spreading supper. To her, however, he spoke aloud his thought. It's out of favour I am, with the vinegary virgins over the way. He had a pleasant, vibrant voice, whose metallic ring was softened and muted by the Irish accent which in all his wanderings he had never lost. It was a voice that could woo seductively and caressingly, or command in such a way as to compel obedience. Inside.